You're listening to the Woman of Value podcast. You are about to hear the story of a woman who is following her dreams and passions and creating positive change in the world. I'd had too much of an not enough, but I still didn't call it. I knew it for a long time. And finally, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself, and he moved out. And that was the beginning of the transformation. My guest today is Jane Pollock. She has been an artist, an entrepreneur, and an author for most of her life. She has written three books. One was based on her work as an artist, as an egg painter. Another was about how she turned her art into a successful business. And the third book just came out this year. It's a memoir about how she stopped settling for crumbs, and now she sits at the banquet table of life. And most important, none of that stuff. It's the fact that Jane is also my, she's been my mentor. She's been my coach. She is a friend and she taught me, and I think she's the personification of the quote, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. She is one of the most prepared people I know (laughs) and has had incredible opportunities come into her life. So welcome to the show, Jane. Thank you so much, Sandy. That was such a beautiful introduction. I'm so flattered and you're such a good mentee. You know, you did, you always did everything I asked you to do and exceeded it all the time. So thank you. And I'm so happy that's what you remember most. I think until I met you, I kind of lived my life sort of in the dark, you know, kind of trying stuff, things would happen, but I wasn't as deliberate as I was after I took coaching classes and became certified. So so what I love to share also is that we had so many things that were parallel in our lives. Both of us went to the same coaching school, CTI, Coaches Training Institute, and both of us were artists. And a friend of ours connected us and said, you have so many things in common, you have to meet. And you and I met at one of the hardest times in my life when I was just going through a divorce and, and I was I was really just a shadow of who I've become today. Mm -hmm. And you were a big part of that. So thank you. Uh, Thank you. And what I remember about that, and and look at that, I imitated you and became divorced. So, (laughs) (laughs) but you've been one step ahead and you, you know, you do it beautifully. So, um, you know, it's, it's good to follow in your footsteps in that path because you didn't make it look bad at all. And it's not. It's not. It's not. So we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I want to start with the what is a woman of value to you? You know, it was easier for me to think of a friend of mine because to describe myself is always kind of awkward. So I think of a friend of mine who's who lives in Boston and often the people we admire just mirror us back. So I'm going to talk about her and, you know, I say, oh, I've got that. I've got that. So she's somebody who really knows herself well. She knows what her strengths are. She knows what her weaknesses are. She knows what she'll tolerate and what she won't tolerate. And I really appreciate that because uh, I, it was hard for me to set limits. And I've heard you talk on previous shows about boundaries, and that became enormous to me. I think women of value have tremendous boundaries around themselves, their time, how they feel in relationships, how they value themselves. And uh, you know, that, that's what I would consider a woman of value, is someone who, who knows her value. Mm. And the boundaries piece, so important. Huge, huge. Yeah, I, uh, and we're about to launch our boundaries course again, because every single conversation I have with a client, with a friend, with anybody in my life involves boundaries. Well, so, like you said, in the beginning, you said you were kind of out there free floating. And it wasn't yeah. until somebody enlightened you and said, here's another way to look at it. And then you start putting boundaries in and everything changes. People regard you differently. It's the old, you know, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, you teach people how to treat you. And you decide, how do I want to be treated? And even now in my, you know, older years, I am continuing to say, no, nope, that doesn't work. It's, mm. going to, it's not going to be that way anymore. It's so wonderful when you get there. And it is. I, and it's, still, it's still challenging though, Sandy. I find it's hard to say to people or to change. And, you know, some people don't even notice it, which is really quite interesting. <laughs> and other people, it's like, you've changed or they go away. They go away yes. very quickly. Which is good. And that's okay. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Like, <laughs> that's what we want. Right. And I think bye-bye. as we get older, it's like we just don't have time for that. We don't have yeah. time to, to be folding ourselves up into a pretzel to try to accommodate other people's needs and giving up our own in the Can't process. Do it. One other thing that I had in my notes um, that uh, this person and I know how to fill our own cups first 
without appearing to be selfish or thinking that it's selfish. You know, I have to, it's the oxygen mask thing. You know, I have to know that I'm being filled up before I can give anything of myself. So I, I'm giving from a, a place of fullness, not emptiness. And then there's all that resentment. So I, I let go of that. That's wonderful. And, and you're a person, I actually use you as an example when we talk about boundaries in that you're somebody I know, I know how to predict what is going on in your life because, or when I'm with you, I know that you're taking care of yourself. So for example, you meditate every day and we've been together where you've said, I have to meditate at such and such a time. I'm going to put my timer on in my, on my phone and I'm going to meditate. And we could be in the car, we could be walking by a library and go in and sit down for 10 minutes. But you have to take care of your needs so that you're a better person. And I love that. I love Thank it. Thank you. It's, you know, it's no longer asking permission, but assuming that, you know, that you will respect that, that value that I have about myself. It's, you know, I realize that all those things I do contribute to why people like being around me. And then when I'm with you, I'm 100% present because I'm not thinking, oh, I, you know, I should be meditating, but she's not letting me. It's like, no, I, I set, you know, I set that boundary. And same thing, you know, you have issues, not issues, but you have requirements around food. So, you know, somebody said, let's go to Haagen-Dazs now. It's like, you know, that doesn't work for me. Or, you know, let's meet at a bar. You know, I prefer to meet for coffee or tea. So to be really clear on who you are, it actually helps other people define themselves. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I just did it with a potential date who wanted to take me to dinner and had this whole romantic thing planned. And I said, you know, I prefer to meet for coffee just to see if we get along and then maybe dinner in the future. And he was like, okay. And then he started texting me between our phone call and when we were supposed to meet and that doesn't work for me. So yeah. I, I don't want to have a false sense of intimacy before I meet. So I just said it very nicely. I really don't like to text before meeting somebody. Is that okay with you? And never heard back from him and he stood yeah. me up. <laughs> so. I, think, I think people continuously reveal themselves yes. to us. And how I would interpret that is that somebody who desperately needs to be talking to somebody and that probably wouldn't work for me. No, and it didn't work for me. Yeah. And good. I got back a few hours that I needed to get some work done that morning. Well, so that was my good. Coach taught me the most important word in dating is N-E-X-T, next. <laughs> and that was you. That was me. <laughs> that was you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an important word. All right. So Jane, let's, let's talk about that aha moment when you realized you needed to make a change and claim your value because we're talking a lot about where you are today. But you weren't always this amazingly boundaried. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah. And this may upset some of your listeners because the, the hardest boundary I had to set was around my mother. And I know that there are people who think mothers are, you know, God, motherhood, and apple pie. And um, not everybody has a mother who um, is worthy of that description and honor. My mother was very difficult. She was ill. She was mentally ill, although that wasn't diagnosed until she was in her late 70s. So um, I was brought up with somebody who was uh, bipolar and probably close to borderline personality, which meant that she was very demanding. She looked kind of normal and she acted kind of normal, but she was extremely critical and mean and um, would put me down. So uh, I would say that my biggest aha moment and my journey has been around the 12 step rooms of recovery. So that was my model of really understanding why I had resentments, what was causing them and what my part was in them. And my part was accepting unacceptable behavior. So in the spring of 2000, when my youngest daughter was graduating from high school, she wanted to, my mother wanted to come to the graduation, which normally I would be happy to invite her. But that night they had something called a post-graduation party for the students. And it involved my um, ex-husband and I being, we were married at the time, but being involved and having to go to bed early so that we could get out and get up and do the like the midnight to 8 a.m. shift. So there wasn't going to be anything other than the graduation. We weren't, wouldn't be able to drive my mother back home, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, mom, it's not going to work out. There's a party for Laura. And she goes, oh, a party and I'm not invited. What do you mean? I, how come I'm not, you know, and she just went on and on the way she always did. And I said, you know what? I, I can't do this anymore. And I said, I will, I will let you know when I'm ready to speak again, because I, I just can't be at the whim of your 
of your behavior. And it was a full year later that I spoke to her again. And when I did, even though it was, you know, an, an amazing growth year for me, when I saw her again, it happened to be my sister. So that was in, in June, in May of the next year, 2001, my sister turned 50 and she invited us all for lunch, including my mother and my daughters, you know, my sisters and so on. And she said, do you want to come? And I said, sure. And I, and I knew I would see my mother and I said, hi, mom. She goes, hello, Jane. As though nothing had happened. You know, it's like she could not, you know, in any way acknowledge what had happened. She treated me with, uh, I would say, kid gloves, you know, after that, because she was afraid that I would cut her off again. And I would have. But she was more considerate. She was, uh, it was, it was really hard. It was really hard. But that gave me the courage. You know, Wayne Dyer had said years ago, if you can't say no to the person, you have to say no to the relationship. And that was a big one to say no to. I had let go of a best friend in 1989. I said, I can't, I can't do this relationship anymore. And then I said no to my mother. And then, you know, my ex and I, my, my husband and I split up. So those were the three primary relationships in my life that had to shift. And then I was free because those were the people I most tried to please unsuccessfully over and over again. And you know, the definition of, in, definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. And I just kept trying harder and there was no response. So I realized I can't be in this relationship because these people are incapable of giving me what I want. And shame on me for continuing to look to people who are incapable. So I moved on and really have never looked back. You know, except my memoir looks back and, you know, describes it. But it really is, you know, I think it's a, a value. If you can't say no to the person, you have to say no to the relationship. And who in your life are you a, unable to say no to, whether it's a child or a sibling or an, a parent or a friend? You know, look at that because it's probably tearing your soul in some way that's very difficult. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that because I, I hear what you're saying that a lot of people see mother as, you know, you can't, you, you don't, you don't crap on your mother. Sacred. <laughs> you know? Well, sacred. Yeah. yeah but they have sacred. wonderful mothers. Right. They have mothers who deserve that. You know, my mother was not kind yeah. to me. And it takes courage to walk away from that because a lot yeah. of people feel too guilty. So I have to say that as a boundaries expert, one of the most difficult places we set boundaries is with family because it's so muddy and it's, um, we feel this obligation to love no matter what to, you know, you have to show up anyway. And I spent so much of my life, even when I was married, just showing up for my ex's family, feeling like a complete fraud, putting on a whole act just so that I wouldn't piss off anybody. And I'll tell you the freedom of not having that in my life it's it's just you can't live an authentic life if you if you hold on to that i i would alter that just by saying it is the most family is the most not one of the most if you can mm. say no and have it respected in your family lucky you yes god bless you and your family and then you can take it out into the world and i'm pretty sure that people who are the most successful in life are people whose families respect boundaries yeah and there probably aren't that many of them <laughs> probably few, few and few and far between Absolutely. And I, I have set many boundaries with my family and, and they have been honored um, more than I thought they would be. And, and I didn't don't, do it with, well, they, I just want to say that I didn't yeah. do it with the expectation that they would change in any way, but I knew how to do it to save myself, to save my sanity. Yeah. And what I wanted to say is that they don't thank you right away you know, thank you for helping me to see that I need to respect that. But five, 10, 15 years later, they might say, mom, that was the most valuable lesson you taught me. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, really sticking with your guns and, and doing it anyhow, even though it's not rewarded. It's, yeah. I think it's very hard. It continues to be hard to set boundaries. One of my favorite quotes is, uh, it was Vince Foster, who was part of the Clinton administration. And he said, the higher up the mountain you go, the harder the wind blows. So the saying no, you know, the higher up you go is more and more challenging. So, but it's important and, and you're called on to do it at, you know, a very, very high level. But our family is the training ground for sure. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I keep hear, seeing, thinking of the word leadership because yes. the more we live in alignment with our values, the more we step into leadership. And if we are visible and we are public, we are even more challenged to be accountable to what's important and to say no to 
people who pick your brain to people who want something for nothing. So tell us, like, what, what are some of the challenges you face today with boundary pushers? It's easier and easier for me to say no. And there are, you know, two phrases, I'm not available. And that doesn't work for me. But thank you. Thank you for asking. So it doesn't even entertain or, or get into the conversation. It's really quite clear. And then if they start pushing, then, you know, there's not much you can do, but just say, repeat, I, you know, I took, I took an assertiveness training class when my oldest was two and she's going to be 45 tomorrow. So, but I remember they said, do something called broken record. So when somebody comes back to you to say, oh, but I just wanted 10 minutes of your time, I'm not available, but, but thank you anyway. You know, thank you for asking. Thank you for thinking of me. I'm sorry, that doesn't work for me. Just broken record until yeah. they get it. Because then they're the ones who are, you know, pushing your boundaries and they're not entitled to do that. Yeah. Or I'm going to go now. <laughs> Gotta go. Gotta go. Right. Gotta Brian Tracy, he was one of my favorite gurus. He would say, "Back to work. Back to work. I gotta get back to work." Yeah, I use that a lot with family. Yeah, back to work. Yeah. So what most of you have seen already, the listeners, is that Jane is a font of quotes. She can quote anybody, and I love that you have like you're pulling out these things and and know where the attribution is from because like I had to look up the. The quote I used at the beginning. Um, yeah, so Earl, Earl Nightingale is credited for the quote about luck and preparation meets opportunity. Uh, but I, I found that it was like from some Roman, um, uh, I, I, I could find out who it is, but it's that's like, cool. yeah, totally not who I thought. It was the Roman philosopher Seneca. That's who it was. Wow. Wow. Uh, you know what? Many quotes we're all, are misattributed. Yeah, I know. <laughs> So, Jane, we talked a little bit in the beginning about your memoir, and yes. that was a huge accomplishment. Um, I, I was with you for most of that journey and just saw it evolve from the beginning. And again, this is a testament to how you work very hard, very with tenacity, with, you know, just you don't take no for an answer. And you're also very willing to learn what you don't know and to go get support. These are wonderful traits that you have. So tell us a little bit about how that came about, and then we'll talk about like what, what's happening today because of the memoir. Yeah, thank you. Um, it took five years, and I think one of the biggest transformations, this was another aha moment, was uh, taking, I, I took several classes at Gotham Writers Workshop, which they have online workshops. It's, you know, fantastic courses. And I was taking a 10-week memoir writing course with a wonderful instructor, Colin Thomas. And at the, what happens is you, you submit 20 or 25 pages of your manuscript and 14 people critique it. And they're, uh, they're not generous. <laughs> they're, they're not generous. They're uh, instructive. And after my first workshop, they call it workshopping my piece, I was, I was like in a puddle. You know, I was, and Colin said, how are you doing, Jane? I said, I feel decimated. I feel so completely criticized and, you know, that I should just hang it up now. And he said, the only thing we want is for you to be a better writer. And my mother used to say very, very critical things, but she never said anything like, I'm only trying to help you. She, maybe she said that, but that wasn't helpful. It wasn't like, you have amazing talent and I want you to do the best with it you can. It was very destructive. And so it took me until a ripe old age to understand that criticism actually has value. And I took every single one of their written comments and I revised. And the second time around, you know, I got far more praise you know, I like the way you straighten this out. This is so much better. And so I, you know, grit my teeth and, you know, make a fist, but I listen to criticism and I take it knowing they're not out to destroy me or to get me or to say, aha, sa, gotcha. You know, it was, it's not, they're not sniping. They're really helping me. And so um, I hired him to be my developmental editor on the book. I took every single one of his changes and it transformed the book. You know, I moved, I moved chapter 11 up to chapter four and, you know, took that relationship out and, you know, hundred, when they say, kill your darlings, you know, I killed a lot of darlings in my book, but I was, I it was, this was something I needed to do. And, you know, very, very pleased with the result of it. I've gotten amazing reviews and it's doing well. 
Yeah. So it feels really good. And I'm back in a, I'm like back in a class with Colin now on essay writing because I'd like some essays to point to my book. So it's a shorter form and those are more easily published. So I, I'm continuing to work with him. I think he's a phenomenal teacher. Yeah. So you seek out teachers and mentors yeah. and, and you take it in and it's, and it, it's gotta be doubly challenging from, you know, your background in having your mother be so critical. So any kind of feedback was just probably taken in as they're trying to take me down. And so to make that transition to they're trying to build me up to my highest self is quite a different way to look at it. And it's, it's something that I teach in my communication training that when you're going to be talking to somebody and having a difficult conversation, always put your intention out front. Mm. Why am I having this? I'm having this because I want to get closer to you. I'm having this conversation because mm. I care about you and I want to repair the relationship. You put that up front and somebody wow. is going to come into the conversation with their guard up. You know, you're going to have a much better chance of connecting. That's beautiful, Sandy. That's, that's really nice. You know, I will say that in our writing class, there's a lot of jealousy and competition, even though we're, you know, having telling completely different stories. I feel it in myself. It's like, well, if he likes that, there, what is it, a zero-sum game? Like there's, if, if she gets and there's not enough for me, rather than it's a huge world and there's plenty for everybody. Yeah. But in my family of origin, it was like, well, if you get that piece of cake, then there's less for me to get. And that was really kind of my outlook on life, which is not healthy. And that has changed enormously, you know, mm -hmm. much more generous. I, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm not a hundred percent, I'm not perfect, but you know, I'm, I, what is it, the arc of, you know, of, of hearing criticism is bending towards, you know, uh, a better way, freedom or justice than, than it used to. So, yeah, you know, I'm growing and changing like all of us. Uh, and I love that, that it's, it's not about perfection. I don't think we're ever there, no. you know, and I think that that's, that's how people relate to you as well. It's not that you're all cooked now and you're all done. It's, it's really a process and it's a constant reminding of your, you know, like, okay, let me, let me process that and it gets quicker, but the ping is there. Oh, I'm feeling jealous. Oh, I'm feeling like there's not enough. And then boom, you're back to expansiveness. You know. What I like to, you know, I tell my coaching clients and friends that, you know, it's not, uh, it, it, I, I learned that the difference between a black belt and a brown belt wasn't um, the level of uh, skills, but it was the uh, a speed of recovery. How quickly can you come back to stasis? How quickly can I say, okay, that hurt and I learned from it, you know, and it used to be five or six years and now it's five or six minutes, you know, so it's definitely improved. It's like, they're, they're saying this to help me okay, ouch, it hurts, but, and you know, I love that putting it out front, you know, as he said, we're, I'm just doing this to make you a better writer. And he yeah. did. Really yeah. Did. No, your, your writing improves so much. And you saw, you saw the manuscript. I saw, yeah, yeah, I saw it, I saw it evolve and that's exciting. It's exciting it to be good. part of the process and see, see the work that went in and see the transformation that happened. And I have another quote I want to put in here. Yeah, please. <laughs> Elizabeth Moss Cantor, Harvard Business School said that my rule for management, if not life, is that everything looks like a disaster in the middle. <laughs> so there was that, you know, that part where like, you know, I'm doing the revisions. It's like, why am I doing this? I should just quit now. I'm going to throw the whole thing away. So what it's taken me four and a half years now, I'm just going to stop, you know, and she, she, you know, at Harvard Business School said every project faces that crisis point, that yeah. disaster point. And then, you know, to me, the courageous people are the ones who keep going. And, you know, and, and usually they have coaches or, you know, somebody who's in their corner. Certainly I have a tribe of people, you among them, who say, keep going, you know, don't quit before the miracle. Yeah, no, and, it, and that's a really important point. I love that quote, by the way. And it's also true for relationships. Often we get into relationships and we're so excited about the, the beginning stages where, you know, it's a honeymoon stage and then all the flaws come out and all the ugly comes out and they're like, well, who is this person? I hate them. And if you, if the relationship has legs and you stick it out and you work through actually seeing somebody for who they really are, you end up having a great relationship. But most people quit before that period of time. Um, so, you know, your book really is about what we just talked about, the, um, you know, the crumbs and now eating at the banquet table. So hold up your book. I want people who are watching the video to see the cover. Um, too much of not enough.
here's so, my book. Yeah. Why, why the title? And, and tell us a little bit about, about the book. I, I settled for so little for so long, and I'm not doing it anymore. It's uh, shocking to some people in my family, but one of, the, one of the stories I tell, and I have a feeling a lot of you listeners are going to relate to this, my, uh, somebody was having a birthday in the family, and it was in the days where the video recorders were gigantic, and we had to rent one from the video store. You know, I wanted to record the birthday party, and before it was over, uh, we went outside, my, uh, my husband and my daughter, and he said, you know, I'd love to have some video of me shooting golf balls, and I go, fine, you know, we've got the camera going, let's do it. So he shoots for about, you know, 15 minutes. He's with the wiffle balls. And I have my two-year-old between my legs going, okay, you know, keeping, let's watch daddy. Let's watch daddy, you know, and he's doing all this. And I said, before we go in, would you take some of me and Laura? I want to, you know, I want this time. I want to record this time to show her. So he goes, okay. And he, he puts a camera on us for five seconds and he goes, I'm going to go in. Okay. And I look right into the camera and I go, okay. Yeah. And it was not okay. It was not okay. It's like, that was a crumb. I just did you for 15 minutes. Give me 10 minutes on me and my daughter. And I couldn't ask for it because I was afraid he would say no. Yeah. So he, he passively, you know, I'll, I'll put it on him. It's not really, but he said, <laughs> is that okay? And I was like, sure, because I was afraid to say no. And for, you know, even, even when he left the marriage, he said, should I move out? You know, he didn't say I'm going. So it was always, and I took that role of savior and, you know, whatever, it didn't work. And now early on, I'll say, this, this isn't working. Something's not right. And I love what you say. This is, I want to work on the relationship. And will, are you willing to talk about this? Yeah. But um, that was an example of a crumb. And there were many, many crumbs. I would see my parents doing, you know, very elaborate things for people outside the family and then you know, actually another one with my, with my ex, he would be on the phone for 45 minutes with parents. He was a, a wonderful teacher, a really superb teacher, talking to them about, about the SAT program he offered. And then he couldn't find five minutes to talk to me. And that was not okay. A, a friend of mine was over once and she said, he puts a lot of energy into those calls, doesn't he? And it's like, yes, all that energy is going outside of the marriage. So, um, so that wasn't, you know, that just didn't work. And I couldn't, I couldn't say no. So it was, I'd, I'd had too much of a not enough, but I still didn't call it. I knew it for a long time. And finally, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And he moved out. And that was the beginning of the transformation that is really cataloged in the book, you know, um, but I had to go back to show what I was like. I, I earned that role. I picked him. We picked each other. You know, that was all I knew. And I thought if I was very good and, you know, did really well and, you know, made a name for myself that he would love me the way I wanted to be loved. And that didn't happen. He yeah. couldn't, I picked the wrong person. I couldn't define it. And um, it was just, it was too bad. We were, we were kind of at each other. And I think he's found somebody who makes him happy and God bless. Mm. Yeah. So you started saying that your parents did something very similar. They would do these elaborate things for people outside the home yeah. and not for you, for their children. Yeah. So I remember um, I was there one birthday. I'm sure I was in my 30s at the time. And my birthday is July 4th. So it was somewhere around there. Maybe we were even having a celebration or something. And my mother is talking about going to visit these friends on Long Island. She said, oh, you know, I got this basket at the basket store. And then I went and got cheese at this shop. And then I got a bottle of wine here. And, uh, you know, I, I found this there. And, you know, the hours and hours of putting this thing together. And she goes, oh, Larry, uh, go up and write Jane a check for her birthday. Okay. You know, I was like, wait a second. I want that attention. I yeah. want that. I want that kind of thinking being poured into me. And it, it really wasn't. It really wasn't. Things were for show. You know, they were how it looked to the outside world. And that was, I was very attracted to that and, you know, achieved at that level. So I went to a, you know, seven sister college. I got good grades. I, was on TV. I had, you know, all those things. But at the end of the day, like David Brooks says in Second Mountain, my ladder was leaning against the wrong mountain. And that wasn't bringing me happiness. At the end of the day, I felt lonely and sad. And now I feel filled up and glad. And that's a very different place to be. And I don't have the trappings. And I like how they're called trappings because they trap you. They yeah. trap you into a way of life that may or not be what you actually want. What I want in my life are relationships, and, you know, loving myself and loving, you know, loving my day. And I have that. Yeah. 
So I, I'm seeing a strong correlation between your home, your family of origin and your, and your relationship with your ex-husband. And, and so you said before that you chose the wrong partner and I'm going to say you chose the right partner <laughs> for you at that time, because that's all you knew. And what, what we do subconsciously is we try to get what we can't get with our family of origin with a partner who can't give it to us. It's this that's crazy. exactly yeah. That's exactly right. And yeah. you know, some people go so far as to say we choose our parents to figure out what we need to work out in this lifetime. Mm. And I I think that's probably true too. But that's exactly right. And then I had a partner who you had met, who was a lovely, lovely man, and I had a relationship for six and a half years, that was very satisfying, very satisfying until it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had to say no at the end of that because it was no longer satisfying. And this was somebody who doted on me, and I had to work really hard to receive. That was really challenging for me because I was so unused to getting. And one example I, I wrote about in uh, it's uh, in my email signature for the Covey Club. Um, I, I had a, a you know a vision of a hundred things I wanted to ha- be, do, and have, and one of them was to receive a weekly flower arrangement, and like like they have in the lobby of the Met. Metropolitan Museum, you know, the Lila Aitchison, <laughs> they're these unbelievable, I, I just like thought, oh, how glorious to receive flowers. And when I met this man who was so loving to me, he mowed lawns and, you know, took care of people's properties as part of his income. And he would bring me a bouquet every time he came, even to the point of one day he came with nothing in his hands. I thought, oh, and he reached into his pocket and he had a little nosegay of flowers. And then he had a baggie of water and a little vial to Man, but it was like I was getting flowers delivered from this beautiful man. It was wonderful, and I loved it. It was just, you know, it was very special. And and you know, I. But as I said, I had to feel good enough about myself to allow that in. There's something about being overwhelmed by somebody's generosity that I know a lot of women suffer from. They like to be the givers. They like to be the doers. But when it comes back to them, they sometimes turn people off. They say, "No, I can't really receive that." I. And what I think the bottom line is, I don't feel good enough about myself to have you do this for me. And I was feeling good. And this man made me an Afghan. He crocheted me an Afghan the first year I knew him, you know, because he knew that I meditated every day. He talked about the meditation, you know, that I had, and he wanted me to have a special blanket that he made. And mm-hmm. I could receive that. So, you know, I didn't need a yacht or jewels, I, you know, but a, a well thought out, crafted gift. Oh my gosh, I still bring it on. You know, I'm still, I love that. Yeah, I remember when you met him and you felt seen and heard. And yeah. that was a number one for you. That was like so missing in your last relationship. In my life. In, in your my life. life. In, in my life. Things. So now, you know, even now, even today, there are people that I can be with who, you know, don't see me. And I, I don't hang out for a very long time because I leave feeling like, why do I feel icky right now because I wasn't regarded and anybody who's in my countenance I give my full 100% and that feels very good to people that doesn't mean they know how to return it so I'm very careful now I had um, an old boyfriend came back looking for me from my college days and I, I said yes I shouldn't have but I said yes and we had lunch together and I felt like he never even saw me you know, he, there was something in his agenda that I was fulfilling, but I did not get anything from that interaction. And it felt really, really bad. Yeah. So that's my, my last essay. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's all material for, <laughs> for what I want to write about. <laughs> so yeah. And every encounter teaches us something. And, it does. But the, your radar right now is so honed for, am I being seen? Am I, is this relationship, does it feel good if it doesn't? goodbye and it's it's you know it's so interesting because I, I I have gone through a similar trajectory and I one of the thing reasons I went into dating coaching was because I missed red flags or I wasn't able to speak up when there was a red flag and I felt like my, I had no voice for so long and so to be able to give that back to a woman or even to my children to anybody really to empower people to show up, stand up and speak up, which is what my new business, The Woman of Value is all about. That is so fulfilling. That's really become my mission. And when I see people overlooking the red flags and saying, and making excuses for the inexcusable, like you talked about before, 
I just want to shine that light so much brighter on those red flags and say, look what you're doing, you know, and here's how you can stop doing that. And it's, I don't, I don't think we can hear that often enough. I think we who grew up in, you know, the 50s, 60s and well, made 50s and 60s particularly. So the baby boom generation, mm -hmm. you know, we're so, women were so, um, not regarded as they are today. I mean, we were on the cusp of it with the women's lib, you know, coming in in the 70s and all that. But still, I mean, you, we see what's happening in the whole Me Too movement. So I don't think you can stress this enough. Yeah. We need it. We, you know, absolutely need it. And we need people in our lives to regard us because once you feel it, once you experience it, there's no turning back. I can, you can't put me back into that hole anymore. I don't fit. You know, yeah. I've gotten way too big for that hole. And anybody who wants to, it's like, no, bye-bye. Yeah. Um, so what do you hope that people will take away from the memoir? That, uh, so my marriage ended in my early 60s, and I have completely reinvented myself, reimagined myself, um, you know, become something I never could have been, done. So I hope that they will find hope, that it's not like, wow, I'm 60-something and it's over. I absolutely want to promise you there is so much left to do, so much left to be and to have. And that, you know, I don't know that I had an example in my life of somebody who was doing it ahead of me. So I want it to be a power of example to anybody going through it. And I, I have women in their 30s and 40s saying, thank you for writing this, because even naming it, identifying it, and, and that, that me too in that way, it's like, oh, that's what I suffer from. And it's not okay. I, I had signals when I was in my 30s, but I had no place to go. No one, I wasn't going to go home to mother. That wasn't an option. I didn't have a friend I would, and it wasn't, you know, it was neglect and, you know, neglect isn't, it, it is a form of abuse, but, you know, I don't think it would have held up in court. I had no money, you know, and so I stayed, we went, he went to therapy, I went to therapy, you know, it got better. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a veil of tears. I, I don't want anybody to think I lived for 38 years miserably. There were high points and wonderful points, but I also didn't know how fulfilled I could be. And mm -hmm. now I do. So I, I would like, women particularly to to see it as a model for fulfillment that's really what i where i see it beautiful and when i met you and i was going through my divorce and i asked you I, we started talking about your marriage and i remember you saying um i'm happily married i'm married forever uh we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things and there were major things you were talking about like spirituality um you had, you had like parallel lives, but it was working for you on some level. And, and that was, that was it for you. Like that, this is it for life. And I was incredibly naive about that and defensive. And like I said, in one part there, you know, if you go to a wedding of bar mitzvah and they have the band leader, everybody's on the dance floor. And they said, if you've been married less than five years, sit down less than 10 years. And I wanted to be the last couple standing. Mm -hmm. I was clear about that. Marriage was my higher power. It is no longer. Yeah. We did a good job. We raised three amazing children, amazing children yes. who I'm incredibly proud of. And that was, you know, that was the reason, but it wasn't a lifetime because we were so different. And I thought, well, it's okay because, you know, we live compatibly, but, um, you know, there was so much missing, so yeah. much missing. And I settled, you know, and so did he, you know, I, I will say he did, he, he didn't, you know, Anyhow, it's over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not the labor. He's, I think he's happy where he is, and yeah. I'm happy where I am. So yeah, which is important. I yeah. feel the same. My ex is happy with somebody new who's so much better suited for him. And yes, you yes. know, we we again, good season and season's yeah. over. <laughs> yeah, right. And we're amicable. You know, it's not it's not hostile yeah. at all. Which is also rare. Not everybody mm -hmm. can do that. That's true. What What's coming up for me, Jane, is the difference between having the full banquet and feeling like some people could take that too far to say nothing's good enough. Like I deserve so much and never being happy with what you have. So can you speak to the difference between? That's a, you know, that's a really interesting distinction. You know, as I said, I, I sort of dined on the crumbs of the banquet table, but I think, you know, if you're a normal, healthy person, there's a time where you feel full. And, you know, it's possible to be glutted or a glutton or to take more, but then you get sick. So I think there's, you know, that's why I love the word enough. You know, I have enough now. I have enough. 
and it's not, um, you know, it's what, 1500 calories at 22,000 calories a day, you know, like I, I'm filled up in every way. And I mean, you can see my surroundings. They're, they're lovely, not lavish. I love my apartment. I have everything I want and need. I had a sign. I, it was one thing I couldn't find in our move, but it said, desire what you have. There were, you know, the four Tibetan flags, desire what you have. And I do. I, I love what I have. It's, it's just enough that, you know, it's the Goldilocks baby, you know, the, you know, this, this chair is just right. And I think that there, you know, there's even a movement in like a big enough house or a small enough house or, you know, there, there are movements that say minimalism that we, we know certainly in America, we have way too much. So I think, you know, people who overfill are trying to fill something or they don't even know there's a hole, let's say there's a hole in their bucket and it's going out the other end because there is enough for you if you're conscious, if you, you know, if you are aware. And, you know, I knew when I was filled up with love, I knew when I'm filled up with food, with activity, you know, I can't absorb anymore. It's like, oh, that's, you know, that's, that feels really good. So um, anybody who's overdoing it is leaking somewhere in my estimation. Yeah, it's a good way to put it, the hole in the bucket. <laughs> dear Liza, dear Liza, <laughs> which probably half the audience will not understand this reference. <laughs> We're getting old. <laughs> but I, I, I like that distinction. I think you said it very well. It's, um, it's, first of all, back to what you said at the very beginning of this conversation about knowing yourself. Like a woman of value knows who she is and she knows what she needs. And so if you know your needs and you know your wants and you can express yourself and set boundaries around them and you have gratitude for what is instead of always wondering what's next, you know, and it's, I think that's a, that's a really important piece. I, I feel that way. You know, I feel sat satisfaction is, you know, my um, therapist uses the words uh, to live a satisfied life. Yeah. you know, or fulfilling, I think they're kind of interchangeable. And, you know, she said that, you know, there are people who are on this axis, which is there's no end to it. But on this axis, where it's satisfied, I have that I have, you know, people in my life that I love, I adore living in New York City. I like my apartment, I like the food I eat, I like the people I surround myself with. I love what I do for a living on a day to day basis. I, I love the, the, um, uh, what's the trajectory of my life? You know, I have things I look forward to, people I enjoy doing things with. Um, so, you know, I don't sit in the front row or, the, you know, I don't have the premium seats for Hamilton, but I got to see Hamilton. You know, I, I get to do what I want to do. And I think the people who are bragging about what they have, I don't need to brag. You know, I don't, yeah. I think people who need to brag, there's again, that hole in the bucket. It's like, I want other people to see how good I am. And I, I'm, not a hundred percent past that, but, but it's, you know, it has, it has weaned. I'd like to, I'd love to see my book on the bestseller list. I'd love to have that credential, but it's selling, selling steadily and people are writing beautiful reviews of it. And that makes me really happy. Yeah. I, I, I think that the, the key to happiness is enjoying the journey and the destination. It's a lot of people, people say that. Yeah. <laughs> just going straight up is just all about the destination and it's all about reaching higher and higher and higher. You're never there. And my, my therapist refers to it as tops and bottoms, you yeah. know, and, and you just want to be on top so somebody else can be on the bottom. And that was very much the family I was raised in. You know, the neighbors, you know, they don't, they don't have two cars in their garage. They don't have, they didn't get into these schools that you got into. And for a moment, a second, you feel pumped up, yeah. but it's fleeting. It doesn't mean anything. No, no, it's a horrible way to live your life that you can only succeed if somebody fails. Exactly. Ah, so let's let's take you to the present to what you're creating yeah. right now. Tell us about that. Well, uh, two main things. I have I have my regular coaching, um, but I'm going around promoting my book. I'm going to Chicago um, this month uh, on September 25th. I'll be in Chicago doing a reading. Um, I just got <clears throat> invited to do a few more interviews. So really promoting, I think, is the the main thing. And then I'm also starting what I call transformational coaching circles, where I take people where they are and where they'd like to be by the end of this year. So it's not a life transformation, but, um, you know, one woman wants to get into writing her book. So, you know, maybe by the end of the, the uh, six sessions, she'll have a an outline or she'll have a, 
proposal, you know, something will happen. So taking people where they are currently to where they want to be, not in five years, but in three months. And so I, I've just been promoting those and they'll start in a couple of weeks. So I love doing that because when people transform, they're so excited. It's like, well, like you said at the beginning of our talk, you know, I, I help people get strategic and do the next right action, very action oriented, very goal oriented but not to the detriment of lifestyle because it, I always ask, you know, for the sake of what, what, you know, why are you writing this book? And this one woman has a child who was severely injured and she wants to help other caretakers. So there's a reason it's not, I want to be a bestseller. I want to have money in my pocket. I want to help other people as I wished I'd had that help. So I'm always clear on what people's why is when they start with me so that we can get them there because that's the motivating factor, not the money doesn't, you know, you can dangle the carrot, but it doesn't really work. But it's like, you know, think of how Susie's going to feel when she reads that book and they go, oh, yeah, oh, this is what I want her to know. And I think that's what you and I know from coaching is that it comes from the heart and the you know, the vision is so important to, you know, to people. And that's what I, I listen deeply for. Yeah, you're so good at that, knowing your why. And, and yeah. that fuels the fire, not the money. It's you know, not, you grew up yeah. with that. You grew up with let's dangle the carrot and let's, let's just keep like flaunting the money piece. And it's empty. It's well, empty. I, I want to say that my mother said to my daughter, my older daughter, if you get into Yale, I'll buy you a car. Oh. And my daughter got into Yale and she didn't buy her a car. Oh, you know, so it was, no. it was dangled and then retracted. So oh, that boy. was really bad. Really yeah. bad. So, yeah. yeah so that, that's what I grew up with. I promised, but oh, I never said that. Yeah. You know, crazy False promises. Yeah. Yuck. Empty promises. So tell us about the future. And you've talked to us a little bit about what's, what's coming in the next few weeks. But what do you see as your vision for the future for yourself and for others? I would like to travel internationally speaking to groups of women about just all that we've talked about today. You know, that my book has such a widespread reputation that people, you know, ask me to travel to where they are to meet with them because there's, I mean, this is lovely, but there's nothing like, you know, actually breathing the same air and touching people. I love working with groups, particularly of women and, um, you know, facilitating the conversation. I'm, I love to see people bond together and to see them open up. You were at that event. I, I did something in the, Connecticut, where I ask people to pair up and, you know, answer three simple questions and give eye contact for two minutes and not be interrupted. And I can't tell you how rare that is. And I set that up and people, you know, I did it in Florida a few months ago. And these women said, I have a new best friend because they don't have people to listen to them. And that's really what I was missing. I didn't have somebody who deeply listened to me and I can structure that for you and make it happen. So I'm, I'm doing more of that. And I would like to do that internationally. That's my my vision is that I, you know, I'm sought after to help people relate to each other and get what they deserve, you know, and, and not settle for less. Beautiful. There's a Hebrew term called tikkun olam, and you probably know what it is. Um, but for anybody who doesn't know, it's, it's really about repairing the world. And mm. I honestly believe that when you take the wounds that you have from childhood and from any relationships that really hurt you, and you turn it into a treasure that helps other people, that is an incredible gift and it becomes your legacy, really. It's, it's how we repair the world and you're doing it, which I think is oh, wonderful. Thank you, thank you. I, I feel like people are relating to it and I just wanna put my arms around them and say, keep, keep going, keep going. It's, uh, it's quite a journey and, I, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do one thing differently. Yeah. Now it's time for the lightning round. I'm going okay. to ask you a bunch of quick questions. <laughs> okay. Fill in the blank. I used to think I wasn't blank enough. So, um, you know, all of the above. Rich, <laughs> smart, thin, cute, funny. Everything. All of them. All, all of them. them. Yeah. There I used to one think I, I wasn't I, enough. Yeah. We'll just take the blank out. There you go. I just, I, I never thought I was enough because nobody was reflecting back to me that you are just as you are is enough. And that's yeah. really true. Yeah. Such an important message. Yeah. What was the number one thing holding you back from becoming a woman of value? You know, I would say, I, you know, it sounds terrible to blame and, you know, and, and then I took responsibility, but a mother who didn't believe in me, you know, he, she didn't believe in herself. Let's put it that way. You know, she was, you know, there's a saying, hurt people, hurt people. And poor woman, she couldn't give what she didn't have. So um, I have 
I, I often joke, I say my, you know, if I had me as a mother, I'd be my daughter, <laughs> you know, who's incredibly successful. Um, and I'm not saying she doesn't have issues. We all have issues, but you know, she's knocking it out of the, all my kids are knocking it out of the park because nobody was saying you can't do that. You know, and I had somebody telling me who my, both parents were so scared. They're both, you know, survivors of the depression, world war two. And they just thought you can't charge that. No one will, you know, and that was, they were just naysayers. So overcoming that, getting past that and understanding that they were doing it out of love, you know, even though it was very misguided and fear that I would be disappointed when I, I had um, the opportunity to an egg for the white house. And I was told it would go to the Smithsonian. And when I told my father, he said, Oh, I'm sure only the best ones will go to the Smithsonian. So, you know, how do you hear that? You know, not like, Oh dad, come on. You know, it's like, mine wouldn't be the best, you know? And, and so that was a lifetime of that is, is very, that's why I'd say that was the hardest thing to overcome. Yeah. That's really, yeah. really painful. Yeah. What's the best advice you can give to a woman who wants to become more empowered? Mm. I, I'm sure other guests have said this, trust your gut. You're, you know, there's a lovely, I'm full of sayings. You're right. You <laughs> point, the body is the midwife to the mind. Uh, something Mindell. Uh, I can't think of his first Arnold Mindell. Um, when you get that, uh Oh feeling, trust it, trust it. That is your body telling you this is not right. And it may just be mean taking a pause. But when we go ahead and we forge ahead with that uh-oh feeling, it's not good. So really trust it. And you can say, I, I heard David Brenner, was that his name? The comedian on yeah. Howard Stern once and Howard, you know, who could be very aggressive, said something goes, oh, Howard, that makes my stomach hurt. You know, it was funny and it was couched and it was really well done, but he didn't answer the question. And I really admired that. So notice, you know, pick your role models. Uh, Jack Canfield said that anybody can be a sur any any woman who is nurturing to you is a surrogate mother. You don't have to go saying, "Will you be my surrogate mother?" You know, you, are you my mother? Are you my you know? Choose any anything that comes in nurturing is is your surrogate can be your surrogate and you can use it. Mm. And ultimately, you can mother yourself. Well, that's essentially it. You know, yeah. is that I can I am full and and how I do that is you know I meditate every day. I eat really well. I nurture myself. My self-talk still isn't 100% positive, but I catch myself sooner. That recovery time is, Jane, look at, look at what you're saying to yourself. Stop. Look how far you've come, you know, and, and, and give myself. And I, I love uh, journaling. There's also writing with your non-dominant hand mm. to say, sweetie, oh my gosh, you are, you are such a gift to this world. Thank you for contributing and keep doing what you're doing. Is there a passage from your book that you'd like to read? I would love to. I'd actually like to read the one that involved you and me in our relationship. So you ready? I'm yeah. ready to go. Okay. So fortunately, another friend of mine had begun coaching women over 40, Sandy, in the dating arena. I hired her to write my profile and consult with me about how to answer the questions. She interviewed me at length and wrote a touching, comprehensive, and real narrative that included humor and irony. The fact that I loved NPR and Howard Stern would make sense to the right guy. Cast a wide net, she advised. Don't make specific income, education, or height a requirement. You might miss a great guy out there who has everything else you want. I took the concept of asking the universe for what I wanted and applied it to dating. To flesh it out, I created a spreadsheet of all the happy couples I knew and wrote down the male partners' names and everything I admired about them in their marriages. Great listener, likes to dance, respects his wife's work as much as his own, can stay in controversy, not afraid of his emotions, after cherry-picking qualities from a dozen males I highly regarded, I had a list of 39 characteristics of the man of my dreams. I wrote another letter to God asking for this person to show up in my life. I could imagine Ben, that was my ex-husband, balking, reading it over my shoulder. Christ, you think there's a God out there who's going to read this and provide the perfect man? Ha. I had internalized his voice as I had internalized my mother's. Now the work became quieting that chorus in my head and moving forward anyway. Every day, Match.com sends its paid members several profiles of potential mates whose algorithms have paired with theirs. Every day, I dutifully emailed a cordial message to each match, noting that we shared an interest in NPR, PBS, or Doc Martin, referencing a tidbit from his profile. I might hear back from one in eight when I did that. Not one to quit, I kept sending out positive messages and agreed to take the man's phone number, protocol, when offered to dial him up in order to get past the writing stage. Out of habit, I responded to one gentleman's profile when it showed up as a match for me. 
He lived 70 miles north of Norwalk and had a head full of curly hair and a playful smile. I wasn't wild about the Hawaiian shirt he posed in, but Sandy warned me about prejudging. His screen name, Six Band-Aid, aroused my curiosity. But the line that convinced me to reach out to him read, not only can I spell credenza, I know what one is and I can move yours. I emailed him that night. By the next morning, I'd received a reply that included a couple of phone numbers where I might dial him the next day. Not knowing if it was a business line or a cell, I chose one and called it the next afternoon. Hi, you've reached the mic line, his outgoing message said. I made a judgment. Who refers to their phone number as the mic line? If there were a copy of my voicemail, it would register a long pause before I made the decision to speak. I had almost hung up. Wide net, wide net. Instead, I left a brief message offering a time that evening when we could speak. Mike called me back that night. As Maya Angelou tells us, we may forget what people say or do, but we remember how they make us feel. You could apply that to online dating communications and judge your prospects by it. This man, the man of the Mike line and Hawaiian shirts, from our first phone call, made me see, feel seen, heard, and appreciated from the first call. And I'll, let your, I'll let readers find out what happened. <laughs> it's beautiful on so many levels. First of all, that, um, that you just kept dutifully doing it, even without success. And that's, that is you, you know. I'm just going to have this tenacity. I'm going to keep after it. You know, it took me five years to get this book published. It took so many emails to get through to Mike, as we're calling him. And, you know, and the way you felt. And this is something that I wish more people would hear because so many people have these crazy checklists. And, I, you know, you can apply that to life. Your life, the way you grew up, had a lot of checklists that were irrelevant to you. And dating often has the same thing. And we look for the wrong qualities in friendships, in partners, at work. We don't connect to our heart and how we feel, how we feel in our body, because our body is so wise and we need to really pay attention. Absolutely. And I think, you know, going back to the woman of value, it's, you know, that my, my um, wish for everybody is that they feel so good about themselves that they won't quit no matter what, because why would they let themselves down? So yeah. it's really, you know, for yourself. It's not for the world. It's like, I, I've got to keep going. There isn't a choice. I remember Jack LaLanne, who I'm sure half of your listeners won't know, but <laughs> I think he was on Johnny Carson or something like this. And he, you know, did like 50 push-ups at the age of something, 60 something. And uh, Johnny Carson said something like, you know, the point was, you know, how old would you be if you weren't doing those? You know, it doesn't matter. We're still, you know, we're still aging. We're still going to be moving forward. So why not have something that we want to accomplish, you know, as we get older? It doesn't matter if it's five years from now. It doesn't matter because I'm going to be that age anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. So Jane, final question, the legacy question, how would you like to be remembered? Uh, uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, that setting boundaries around kids isn't always appreciated. I would like to have gotten to the point in my life where, you know, my family just says, you, you taught us so much. You know, I would like to say that even though it was hard and we didn't like it for a very long time, we value what, you know, what you taught us and um, we love you for it. I'm not there yet, so I can't die. <laughs> but I'm hanging on because I believe it so strongly. I believe so strongly in how I'm living my life that um, I would love. And my legacy, I, you know, it's not that I don't care what other people think, but, uh, you know, we, we went back to that, you know, family is the most important. And I would love them to say, you really, you really taught me how to value myself by the example that you set. I think that there is already a lot unspoken. I know you want to hear it, but I think that the lives that they're living and the way they're raising their children and, and the partners that they chose have a lot to do with the influence that you've had. You know, and I know that's true. And what's funny is in the, in the essay class, he said, write down, you know, a provocative first line. And I wrote down, you know, I've broken up with my family, but they don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's true, you know, like I, I've taken this step back, but this time I do with my mother, it's like, I can't talk to you. And with my friend, it's like, I can't do this anymore. And with my family, it's just like, I'm just not, I'm just not jumping into some of the things I used to jump into. So, you know, it's a, a silent way or a, 
you know, my own way of doing it, it with more maturity than I have in the, before. No, no drama, no drama. Well, thank you so much, Jane. My pleasure. Uh, you know, you, you, you've been twice a guest on the last First State Radio podcast, and that was the, some of the most popular shows uh, that we did uh, about nipping it in the bud, about really very similar similar themes, about really knowing what you want and need and, and having a quicker reaction time, having that black belt in boundaries mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. in, in really having the best life you can have from the full banquet. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sandy. And I wish it for everybody who's listening to this and all that you know and love. If you would like to step more fully into your value, grab a free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Becoming a Woman of Value on my website, thewomanofvalue.com. Just click the link at the top of the homepage. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to click the subscribe button in your listening app. And if there's something in this episode that inspired you, please share it with others. Because the more we share these inspirational stories, the more women of value we will have in this world. I'll see you next time.